This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, bookcasers and bookcase listeners. I'm Kate Gibson. I'm Charlie Gibson. And I would tell you that Kate and I always struggle with how we're going to open this thing, how we're going to start it. What can we do that's different to get it started? So I've come up with an idea. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to sit here with enthusiasm for the idea. Do you remember Do you remember the Mickey Mouse Club? Well, yeah, but I'm more of like the Justin Brittany days, and you're more of like the Annette. Well, that was the new Mickey Mouse Club, but yeah. I go back to the old Mickey Mouse Club. Black and white. <laughs> black and white television. It was somewhat black and white television. <laughs> anyway, so now stick with me. I'm sticking with you. You remember the theme song? I've gotten on the ride. I'm on the ride. Okay. The bookcase. Mm. T-H-E-B-O-O-K-C-A-S-E. The bookcase. Kate and Charlie. The bookcase. Kate, Kate and Charlie. Charlie. Father and daughter podcasting. We're a family. T-H-E-B-O-O-K-C-A-S-E. Good. I got in at the end there. That was good. We had har- I, We didn't have harmony, but I actually figured out the words by the end there. All right. We hope all our listeners will excuse our stupidity and this week's book, which is written by a first-time author. Her name is Laura Spence Ash. The name of the book is Beyond That, the Sea. It's a historical fiction. I think about a time in, well, really, for me, it was an occurrence in history that I didn't know a lot about, just on the periphery. But during World War II, in order to escape the Blitz, lots of London families put their children on boats and sent them to the U.S. and to Canada to keep them safe from the bombings. And this is the story of one of those girls who is sent to the U.S. and lives with a very affluent family. Her parents are torn to send her, but she lives with a very affluent family during World War II for five years. Her family of modest means in England, and indeed they don't have the means to even come over and visit her during those five years. Mm. And she does get put with a family of, as you mentioned, of some means. Beyond That the Sea is the name of the book. Laura Spence Ash is the author, first-time novel for her. And it's really a wonderful read. We couldn't recommend it more highly. Here's our conversation with Laura Spence-Ash. Laura Spence-Ash, it is such a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. We usually avoid having authors explain their plots to us, but I feel like the historical period in which this novel is written is so important. So I wanted to ask you sort of about the historical period where this novel takes place and sort of what the phenomenon is that it examines. Yeah, I doubt many folks know that Mm. so many kids were sent over to this country to protect them from the German blitz. How many were sent, do you know, to the United States and to Canada? Around 15,000 were sent from the research that I've seen. And I'm sure that number probably underestimates the number because those were probably only the official programs. And there were a lot of private programs as well, communities that kind of came together to decide to sponsor some of these kids. And families took them in. Was there, American families, Canadian families, was there an assurance or some way to screen whether the kids would be well-treated. 
Not necessarily, especially in the private programs, because these were just kind of communities coming together. I think most of the American experiences were quite positive and probably the Canadians as well. I did not see a lot of stories about bad experiences, but it was certainly a risk, right? The thought of putting your child on a ship alone and sending them across the Atlantic must have been frightening. And why were no Jewish children? sent to this country. These were, they were not Jewish. We didn't take in Jewish kids during the war, but we did take in Protestants, Catholics, etc. I mean, I don't think our track record then was terribly good, right? With helping people in need. So I'm interested as to what came first. You know, what hooked you? Was it the period that hooked you first? Was it the voice of B? What was it that originally sat you down and said, I've got to write this, I've got to get it out of my head? So I first read about this phenomenon of sending kids to the States in 1998. There was an article in the Times about a group of older British adults who came back to see where they had been. And I had, as we were just saying, I had no idea this occurred. I was fascinated. I read everything I could find. My own children were one and five at the time, and I couldn't imagine making this decision. And then I read a memoir by a man who was sent to a town south of Boston. And completely coincidentally, that was the town where I went to high school. And in fact, he and I went to the same school because I was there as a boarder and he was there as a day student living with a family in that town. And obviously our experiences were totally different, but that was the first time I'd ever been away from my family. So I knew a little bit about what it was like to be in that place and to be far from my family and also how quickly it became a second home. And so I decided I had sort of been mulling over this idea in my head and all of a sudden I had a setting, I had a place, everything else kind of blossomed out of that. When did B introduce herself to you? B was the first. Absolutely. She's the first. She's the spine of the book and she's been with me a long time. I started writing this in about 2007, 2008. So she feels like a, a family member at this point for sure. I have said a number of times that I have a soft spot in my heart for late in life novelists. And many tell us that they carried their characters with them for years before sitting down to write the novel, as you just said, was true of you. So where did the two families come from? Mm -hmm. The English family, the American family, a relatively poor family in England, sending their child to a well-to-do family in the U.S. Where did they come from? They really just came out of my imagination. I'm sure at the beginning, as with, I think, much writing, there's a kernel of someone you know there. But I think especially in something like this that has been alive for so long, I've been working on it for so long, that these characters become three-dimensional people. They don't resemble anyone in my life. They are, you know, fully formed out of my imagination. And that's, for me, the wonderful thing about writing is the ability to create these characters and turn them into people. I'm interested, though, because I think I read an interview where you talked about the fact that when you first put this book together, you know, when you had originally conceived of the book, it was B's voice entirely. And then when you read the book, it's actually a rich tapestry of all sorts of narrative voices of Gerald and, and Nancy. And, and I'm interested as to when those voices joined B's chorus, as it were, at what point. Yeah. So at the beginning, I was thinking it was just going to be B's story. And then at some point I thought, well, maybe I want to add William and Gerald, the two boys that she lives with. I want to add their voices as well. And somehow that didn't quite work either. And then what I slowly started to realize was that this was a novel about family more than anything else. And so that meant I wanted to include the points of view of all the members of both families. Mm. And in order to do that, and in order to cover 30 plus years, I needed to write in these very short staccato moments. And that all sort of came together at once. And that's when the book 
started to become a book for me. It started to just flow in that way. I read the book a couple of weeks ago. If I count correctly, there are eight voices that I think have chapters in the book. So you do write from many viewpoints, not just Beatrix or Bees. Was it difficult to make sure you could keep them straight with each voice being unique and true? It wasn't that difficult, actually. Once I started writing in those shorter moments with all those voices, it just sort of flowed out. I actually took a year-long novel generator class where 12 of us were writing a novel over the course of a year. And because there were people waiting for pages, because I was surrounded by all these other people doing the same thing, I actually wrote a first draft of the novel in this format in under six months. It just kind of flew out. Um, and then, of course, there were several years after that of editing and going back and doing exactly what you just said, making sure the characters were true. But it really came quite easily once I figured out the right way to tell the story, I think. I'm interested to, you know, you have all of these different perspectives in the book. So much of the book takes place in the memories of those characters. And so I'm interested, how reliable did you think your narrators were in retelling the past? Yeah, did they did they have an accurate <laughs> memory of what actually happened? Well, I was worried about that, and that's actually why the first section and the third section, so 40 to 45 and 60 to 65, are actually in the present tense, told in the present tense, mm-hmm. because I didn't want to think about memory. I wanted these to be sort of unfolding as we read them, and that the reader would get to kind of experience that moment with the character just as it was developing. The middle section mm-hmm. is written in the past tense, and there I did use a retrospective voice because that's just two of the characters who meet up for a few days, and I wanted that section to feel very different and to be thinking about memory in that case. There's a technique that you use that I've seen in other novels, but I think would be difficult for a writer because much of the plot is not explicitly written in the book. It doesn't actually take place that you learn about things after they happened. And I would think it's a bit tricky to write that way, that you worry the reader might feel cheated if they don't have a contemporaneous description of what took place. You know, my interest is in time. Number one, I want to see what happens over a long period of time. I want to see how people and characters change. But I'm also rarely interested in the big moments, right? The funeral, the wedding, those big things. I'm always interested in the before and the after. And that's, I think, what you're referring to. A lot of times in the book, we don't see those big moments, but we hear about them afterwards or we hear about them before. And that's what's fascinating to me and also what we do remember. And I was thinking of these, even though they're present tense, as sort of memories in the making. What we do remember often are not those big moments, but they are the thing before or the thing after. But I'm I'm reading and I'm thinking, well, why didn't she tell me about that? (laughs) 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 Somebody gets pregnant and well, it just sort of happened. And then then I'm supposed to know about that. Somebody dies. All those things. I, I keep thinking, why didn't she tell me? Why didn't she tell me? Why did she hold? that back from me. (laughs) But I do think it also gives the reader a place to ask those questions, right? A reader to be participate in the reading of the book. Mm. I'm interested. I want to talk about the title of the book, Beyond That the Sea. I want to just be able to give our listeners a very basic explanation before I start asking you specific questions about it. Where did you get it and how did it inspire you? So it came from a line from Virginia Woolf from the waves. And I've always loved that line. And the last words of that line are beyond that, the sea. I just love it. There's just a yearning in it, I felt, and a a sense of a life. And both of those things, I think, are in this novel. I think 
for all eight of these point of view characters, we essentially see their life arc. And so it felt like the right title to me. I always knew I wanted C in the title because the Atlantic is this big thing that separates these two families and keeps characters apart. And so that was very important to me. And it took me a while. I always loved this line, but I wasn't sure it was the right title. And then right before actually we went on on submission, I changed it to this. And I'm so glad I did because I feel like it's just perfect. The full Virginia Woolf quote is, in the beginning, there was the nursery with windows open to a garden and beyond that, the sea. I wondered, Kate and I got talking about this, whether there was yeah. a was a double meaning to your choice of beyond that to see. Obviously, water is very important in the novel. She comes to the United States and much of it is on an island. Also, this is a young child from the nursery sent across the sea. She's 11 years old, but figuratively from the nursery. So is it sort of a quote that encapsulates life? That's why I have always loved that quote. Yes, I think it's absolutely a life, right? In the beginning, we just move right through the life. And you can almost imagine a person in the nursery walking to the window, seeing the garden beyond that, the sea, right? There's just this expansiveness to it. And the way it just kind of the sentence unfurls the way a life unfurls. And I just love that. I'm interested as to what was the road not taken? Did you have a title before beyond that, the sea? And what was it? Yeah, I had a number of titles. They were all those kind of very vague titles that don't really pin it down to this book, right? Things like who we are now or, you know, stay with me now. I think those were choices. And I was never happy with any of them. They weren't specific enough, mm. but I was worried that this might be a little too not specific enough, maybe, or, or too broad, but I think it, it works really well. And I was really glad they let me keep it. <laughs> it does conjure up a picture window of a horizon and the sea, which is, I don't know, it was, it was, it was, to me, it was the perfect title for this mm-hmm. book. And so I was fascinated at how you made that fit together so well and when. If there was one quote from the book that I think encapsulates it, mm-hmm. it is the agony that B has and both of her families have, of this child who is displaced and who is really of two families, her birth family in England and the family to which she is sent in the United States. I belong here, and yet I'm in limbo, really caught between two worlds. I can't seem to find where I fit. And I think that issue of where we all fit is real, not only for her, but it occasions that question, I think, for all of the characters, including the sons of the family to which she is sent. I, I think it's a very interesting question that you had a chance to explore in the book. Yeah, I'm always fascinated in identity and people figuring out where they belong. And I think this idea of people being in two places and not being able then to figure out where is home is a very important question and one that I'm always interested in exploring, both in reading fiction and in writing fiction. I wanted to ask you, I'm sort of fascinated by the writing. So much of this book is about the things that you don't say. And so I'm fascinated as to how a writer conveys the absence of words when they're writing, because you rely on words for your craft. Is it just building more language of the yearning and longing in there that conveys that absence? How do you go about not beating people over the head with missed opportunities, but making the reader know that there are missed opportunities? 
No, that's a great question. I think I'm a pretty minimal writer. Up until I wrote this, I'd only been writing short stories. So I was used to writing very condensed pieces. And one of the things that scared me about writing a novel was this idea of these big scenes and a big plot and just like the largeness of it all. And this format in these very small chapters allowed me to, again, do it in these very tight little pieces, very minimal, you know, minimal word count really for a particular moment. And to, again, let the reader come in there to fill in those gaps and to understand what was not said. I would imagine every moment you wrote, you had in mind the agony inherent in deciding to send a young child away. And you must have been thinking about whether you could have done it. You made mention of the fact you couldn't have a moment ago. But uh, in the long run, could you have, knowing the Blitz was coming? Would you have? My brother-in-law was sent overseas to protect him from England. And when I learned of that years ago, I sort of took it for granted. I, I thought, oh, yeah, sure. But as I read this, you certainly put the question foremost in my mind. Yeah, we had the discussion last night for an hour as to whether or not we could do it. I mean, what an impossible choice, right? I suspect that push comes to shove, I would have done it, right? If that was the safest thing for my child, then that's that's what one would do, right? But it's so hard for us today, I think, to imagine that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I saw you quoted as saying writing this novel sort of gave you refuge during COVID. The quote I think you said was this novel was a place I could go where I had control. Perhaps that was more true during COVID, but I suspect it's always the case for a novelist. And one of the parts that would attract a novelist to writing, Rebecca Mackay, in her final thought to us, her coda, she said, you know, it's sort of a drag just to see life through your own eyes. When you can see life through the eyes of all your characters, that's great. But if you see life only through your own eyes, that kind of sucks, she said. Uh, is, is that something that sort of empowered you and gave you joy in writing? Absolutely. I mean, that's why I love to write. I love to imagine these characters. I love to become someone else or preferably many other people. <laughs> like that's one of the joys of writing this. I had eight different characters' minds to jump into. It was so much fun. And it is a refuge. It is a solace when there's a lot of noise going on in our world to know that you can return to this world that's completely within your own control, right? You can decide what happens. Mm. And that's that's really wonderful. Mm. I'm so glad that you wrote the book because we thoroughly enjoyed it. Beyond that, to see, and we wish you future success because we loved it. Thank you so much. Laura Spence-Ash, good to have you in the bookcase. Thanks yeah. very much for yeah. being with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg. 
a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Rapid fire for Laura Spence Ash. You say in your acknowledgments that your parents died before the novel came out, and you say this novel is for both of them and of them. They are on every page. How so? I think this novel is in a large part about grief, um, grief and love, and that those are two things I feel about them. So I think that's how they are on every page. Most influential book in your life? I would say William Trevor's Fools of Fortune. He's primarily known as a short story writer, but Fools of Fortune is a wonderful short novel that I just love and I have read and read and read and will continue to read for the rest of my life. Your novel has eight principal characters putting aside B and Beatrix, who is the central voice. Do you have a favorite among the others? I would say that Rose is my favorite. Rose is a character that enters the book later in the book, and she was such fun to write. She's somebody who loves the Kennedys, and that was really fun to explore. And to see her arc, her life arc, was really fascinating to watch. Is there a character you didn't like much? You know, I struggled writing William. William is a difficult character, and that was a struggle. Mm -hmm. He's hard to understand, and it was hard for me to kind of be empathetic towards him. It's not that I didn't like him. I just struggled to write him well. Book that made you a reader? Probably Jane Eyre. When I was in elementary school, I remember, again, a a reread, right? Rereading that again and again and again. We talked to somebody recently who had taken a course called Reading Reading for Writers. And I'm curious, do you think... Writers read differently than me and thee, Kate and me. I mean, I certainly do now. I I can't really read without thinking about structure, without thinking about the craft choices the writer has made, without sort of storing some things away in my own mind, or, ooh, I'd like to try that someday. So I, I do think there's a difference in the way that a writer reads rather than a reader reads. If you could write a novel that people might mistake as coming from a, a writer that you admire, Who would that writer that you admire be? Probably Calm Toybean. I I love his work. Hmm. I just, again, those are novels that I read and reread, and I just think he's wonderful. Is there a genre you simply won't read? I don't read a lot of science fiction. It just, I, I can't quite get there. I read a little bit of it, but I'm not a huge fan. And finally, a question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we find it illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Um, let's see, healthy, happy, quiet, book-filled, peaceful. Perfectly fair to take a hyphenated word. (laughs) A bit of a hedge, but okay. Our conversation with Laura Spence-Ash. Kate, your takeaway. You know, what haunts me from this whole experience is the book. You know, when I had kids, I started worrying about them constantly and all the things that could go wrong with them. So with this book, obviously, the first thing that I thought of is if I was in the situation, hypothetically, could I send my child overseas to escape the war. Now, of course, people didn't know that it was going to be five years and change or or what have you, but it was a serious commitment. You were putting your kid on the open sea. They were going to come back a different child. And if I'm away from my kid for four or five 
days. Days? Right, I'm yeah. inspecting them from, from start to finish. Do you have lice? What's going on with your fingernails? Like, I just, I don't know that I could do it. I don't know that I could do it. And that really stays with me. It haunts me a bit. But thousands and thousands mm. of families did it. Mm. It's a wrenching choice. But it does really call into question, what is home? How do you adapt? This is an 11-year-old girl who, by the time the war was over, was 16. So it, it is, it's a good read. It's a good book. Laura Spence-Ash, the book is Beyond That, The Sea. We get back to our bookstores this week. We have with us uh, Drew Cohen, who was one of the owners of the Writer's Block in Las Vegas. And that really sort of intrigued us. What is a bookstore in Las Vegas counterintuitive? Yeah, you just don't really see quiet book corner nooks in a place like Vegas. You know, so it really, of course, you know, all the jokes came into our head, you know, what's your typical customer, like a showgirl, whatever. But it's a lovely looking bookstore, and we had a wonderful time talking to them. It's a lovely bookstore, and there's no neon. (laughs) No neon at all. No neon, and I don't even think there's a slot machine. So, (laughs) But as he says, you have to have a little glitz uh, to have a bookstore in Las Vegas, and they've come up with some imaginative ideas. Drew Cohen, one of the owners of the Writer's Block. Drew Cohen is joining us, one of the co-owners of the Writer's Block in Las Vegas. And Drew, I guess the first reaction of most people would be an independent bookstore in Las Vegas. That's counterintuitive. What possessed you to go out and uh, take over this bookstore? Well, partly just that there wasn't one, I guess. So in one sense, I can confirm your preconceptions about Vegas. There were attempts at independent bookstores before we opened but none of them took root for very long. And Vegas is a boom town. It has grown precipitously in the last few decades. Well, I was going to ask you sort of to describe, if you could, your typical local customer, or when it comes to Vegas, is there no such thing as a typical customer? This is going to be a boring answer, because I wish I could tell you that our typical local customer was like a showgirl or like a a (laughs) poker dealer. Um, But our typical local customers, I do think, look a lot like the typical local customers of bookstores nationwide. It's, you know, a lot of like young families, young adults, college students. We've gotten the cliche of showgirl out of the way. I want to ask one more Vegas cliche question, which is how big is your how to play cards, how to game the system section of your bookstore? That's a really good question. And the answer is that it doesn't, it doesn't exist. We actually don't even have that section, partly because there is a bookstore not far from us called the Gambler's Bookstore that exclusively caters to that. So we, we don't even try to compete. It's like, I don't know anything about that world either. As I've read about your bookstore and researched it a little bit, the word I keep seeing is whimsical. which is a lovely word to describe a bookstore. How have you made it so? Well, my husband, Scott, and I both felt like it was imperative as a Vegas bookstore to put some showmanship into the presentation. So we really tried to focus on, on on what the store looks like, what it's like to experience it. Scott is, he's really obsessed with Disney World, which sounds really corny. It's like classic <laughs> Disney. Like, he'll watch like walkthrough videos of like the Disney cues for the attractions and like we really tried to 
think of it that way. So we have a lot of installations in the store. There's a lot of artificial trees. There's artificial birds. Our checkout is a giant bird cage that sort of looks like a casino cage as well. <laughs> and we actually, this, we're installing these like quasi animatronic totem pole installations that sort of like recall it's a small world and they're going to rotate and those will be in the kids section. I think a lot of people look at book clubs as sort of dusty, library, boring, little old ladies with cat's eye glasses on chains, but you have a few book clubs and none of them sort of smack of that. I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling our listeners a little bit about those book clubs and who started them and what you do. Yeah, we do have a bunch of different book clubs that are a little unorthodox. The most famous for sure, locally at least, is our bourbon book club, where we pair a book with some kind of whiskey, not always a bourbon. And that book club we started specifically because we found that no men were coming to our book clubs. Um, So (laughs) we like kind of developed it around this idea of bourbon. And of course, it's still like 70% uh, women at the Bourbon Book Club, but we get a few men. Uh, <laughs> was the, um, that's, that's definitely the most eye-catching, I think. Las Vegas is a year-round destination for tourists. So unlike many seasonal book clubs, you've got a year-round inventory, I would suspect. But do you stock what are basically known as summer books or beach books? And, and are there any that you recommend right now? I mean, my summer book this summer, which I'm, I'm worried that other people have maybe mentioned it on your, your cast already, but is, uh, is Emma Klein's The Guest. I loved that, that novel. I grew up on Long Island where it's set. My mom lives out east on the island, so like kind of close to where I suspect the novel takes place. Drew, it's, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. I wish you good luck. Oh, yeah. All right, Drew, thank Have you. Have a good one, Drew. Take care. Yeah, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a good one. Take care. Or thanks. Bye-bye. And you can find the writer's block if you're in Las Vegas and you are so inclined to buy a book. It's at... Uh, I think 6th Street and East Bonneville. I don't know Las Vegas, so those who do, I guess, may know where that is. I love the idea, by the way, of walking through the MGM Grand and going, I can't stand this one more second. I need a book. A book. I have to have a book. That's terrific. I love that. I love that. All right. Who is responsible for the bookcase? Let's remind people. And then we'll have a a little bit of a coda from Laura Spence-Ash. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our senior producer and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. The line from William Trevor, the present's hardly there, the future doesn't exist, only love matters in the bits and pieces of a person's life. Mm-hmm.